0: Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, today I am recording from Frigid, Austin, Texas, um, which was not as it was supposed to be. Um, I, as I think I mentioned at the end of the Thursday podcast, I had a special trip planned for my daughter, a surprise birthday thing. We do this thing um, where it's sort of become a weird family tradition where we uh, surprise her with trips places. Um, She just likes the adventure and that becomes a fun thing. And it was sort of my turn to do it, daddy-daughter style. And we picked, uh, my wife and I picked Austin because it was one of the few places in the country that was both a cool city, um, for the most part opened up and um and relatively warm uh i have a long standing promise to my daughter to take her to disney world where she's never been despite the fact that she's an amusement park fanatic um and i didn't want to uh cheat and use that promise up as a birthday present so we figured we would do this instead and it is cold it is just butt cold it is um um uh, uh It's borderline freezing and Texans, it turns out, are at least Austinians, Austonians, Austinites. Um, Their ability to drive and even the hint of winter-like conditions is pretty comparable to uh, the ability of D.C. residents to drive in winter-like conditions. Um, So anyway, we're still having a fun time. We're staying at the Line Hotel in Austin. Um, which is a pretty cool, funky place and eating well and going on various weird drives and adventures. And um, anyway, enough about all that. I just, I I guess part of the reason why I'm filling in all all this kind of stuff is because it just, it seems in some ways, um, you know, I didn't write a G file today because I had this, this family stuff to do. And as I've said a bunch of times on here, I think family stuff is more important. Most of this politics stuff, and you know, my daughter's going to school, going to college next year, and um, and I just kind of felt like, and since I've been working so hard launching the dispatch and all that, that I haven't had a lot of as much quality time with her as I would like. Um, I thought just shelving the G file this week was warranted. Hate doing it, do it very, 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 very rarely, makes me feel kind of like, um. My OCD is kicked in and I've failed to touch my spoon to my chin um, or whatever it is that I, you know, people with compulsive disorders have to do. Um, But it's also because I got to say, I am pretty just down on the state of our politics in our country. I had this, this idea that somehow things would get better um, in a serious way after Trump left office. I just don't see that much evidence for it. I certainly don't see the Republican Party getting healthier and better. And, um, and I'll get to impeachment in a minute. But look, I mean, there are now a bunch of people uh, and not just fringe people. I think it's the Oregon GOP has officially said this. Got a Major Republican in Michigan has said this. Um, uh, what's her name? Maria Bartiromo applied this on air on Fox, uh, that, or at least on Fox business that the people who stormed and of course, Marjorie Taylor green said this, but uh, who, who, that she's crazy. Um, but a bunch of people have said that, um, the attack on the Capitol on January 6th was a false flag operation or a, um, uh, You know, these were crisis actors working for BLM and Antifa to make Trump look bad. And it's easy to sort of just dismiss that this is a really dumb thing to say. And it is a profoundly dumb thing to say. Um, But if you take a second and take it seriously, what it signifies, it's much more depressing. Because you have to, there are only two possibilities. Either the people saying this stuff believe it in which case they are either a mix of profoundly stupid um, and or um, deeply, deeply disturbed people, or they're lying. But, I mean, I, if someone can offer me a th- or some combination of both, of course, but if someone can give me a third option, some sort of exculpatory option behind, beyond uh, just... Sandpoundingly idiotic, or deranged, or evilly deceitful—I'm open to it. And you have to—you know—you have to appreciate that this. This for you to actually believe such a thing, you have to believe that the Justice Department, which has made scores of arrests where people have uh, spoken before judges where people's records have been searched, um, where they are on video um, saying that they're doing all of this stuff for Trump, you have to believe that these people are not only just really amazing actors who have gone deep, deep cover to do this, but that um, when facing jail time, often significant jail time, rather than flip on the left-wing masterminds, that put them up to it, they're willing to go to jail pretending that they were loyalists to Trump just to make Trump look bad. And you also have to believe that all of these uh, people from Charlie Kirk and Ali Ali Alexander and Steve Bannon and and, and all the rest who sent buses down there, that none of them found any evidence before January 6th, that these people were, you know, BLM or Antifa deep, deep cover operatives. Um, um, You have to believe that they sort of blended in on these buses that came from all over the country, that Charlie Kirk and all these guys were very proud to send to Washington. Um, And that uh, all the people who did the bad things were these crisis operators, these crisis actors, and all the people who were just democracy loving stay within the red ropes people were the real trumpists and the, but the real trumpists didn't stop any of these people from beating up cops um they didn't stop anybody from smashing in doors i mean the more attention you pay to this idea the more you realize how just immense either the derangement or the lie is and you ha- and so look at there have always been crazy people out there, and I've been hearing from them, usually in all caps, for my in, almost my entire professional life. Uh, that's fine. But when the leaders of state parties, of the Republican Party, say this kind of stuff, when elected members of Congress and people who get paid millions of dollars to be on TV say this kind of stuff, and there's no official sanction for it, there's no apology for it. Um, Look, this is one of these places where I would like a lot more cancel culture. These are a a lot of these people work for mainstream official institutions, and they are either saying these things or allowing these things to be said with no correction. And it's a sign of just profound moral and intellectual corruption. And uh, and that gets me to the the impeachment stuff in general. Look, at this point, if put aside the people who are saying these are crisis actors and, um, and, and that this was a false flag operation as repugnant and evil as I think all of that is and what it represents. Um, you know, let's take, you know, the, the more good faith or mainstream arguments about what is going on. If I have to hear one more, what argument about how Maxine Waters said something terrible or Chuck Schumer said something terrible. Um, or about how bad the riots were in Minnesota and whatnot, as if this is a serious argument for why Donald Trump shouldn't be held accountable, I'm going to blow a gasket for want of a more colorful phrase. Um, first of all, let's just stipulate up front, anybody who incites violence, and all that kind of stuff. And says, all oh, they should be criticized. They should be sanctioned. Um, uh, certainly, if you participate in violence from whatever ideological point of view, that's really bad. Fine. I, you know, if, if you want to, you can't actually impeach Congress, members of Congress. But if you want to remove or censure Maxine Waters, be my guest. I think she's a loon. And she's a, I think she's a dangerous loon. I have no respect for the woman whatsoever. But she's also not the president of the United States. And you know, the you know, using it's absolutely true that politicians use fighting rhetoric and martial rhetoric all of the time. And I have uh defended people like Sarah Palin and others for against the ridiculous accusation that somehow it was conservative, you know, what what, what did Paul Krugman call it, you know, eliminationist rhetoric that led to the um, Arizona shooting a few years ago. Um, That was all ludicrous. It was just factually a lie. It made no sense logically the second you looked into it. Um, And the idea that Donald Trump, when he was saying you gotta fight, you gotta fight and all that kind of stuff was no different than when Joe Biden says, you gotta fight, you gotta fight. is just ludicrous because it doesn't take into account the time place and manner where donald trump was saying these things and again i'm i've been making this argument for a very long time now that they, i don't think i think everyone is focusing too much as bad as the violence was everyone's focusing too much on the violence everyone's focusing too much on um, the death and i'm not trying to minimize those things but I don't think Donald Trump intended for anybody to die. Um, What I think is, is that even if the crowd had been entirely peaceful, what Donald Trump did was impeachable and outrageous. He was unleashing a mob to interfere with the constitutional functions of government. He was trying to get the government to do something. He was trying to get Mike Pence to do something that was plainly unconstitutional. He violated his oath. He um, failed to see that the Constitution was faithfully, def- you know, was defended and the laws were faithfully executed. Um, and he didn't just do that on January 6th. He did that for months after the election. He claimed, he came to the conclusion it was stolen before the election even happened. He came to the conclusion that the election was stolen the night of the election before any of this alleged evidence that, you know, Rudy Giuliani was chasing down like O.J. Simpson after the real killers. Um, The the whole process of having his day in court, all of that was window dressing because there was no evidence that the election was stolen. He he, He came to the conclusion before the evidence was ever around because for him, in his lizard brain, he thinks if he loses, that alone is the evidence, regardless of what the process was that uh something unfair happened because it is axiomatic you know not even god can build a boulder so heavy even he can't lift it and no election no contest can be created that Donald Trump can lose because it's just a contradiction in his mind which is why he's so famous at cheating at golf and all of these other things and and so the simple fact of what he did had it remained peaceful should have been considered an impeachable offense. And the fact that he whipped up the crowd, whipped up the masses so that fighting rhetoric, which yes, is typical in politics, would be interpreted differently in that context is what really matters. You know, um, it's one thing to say, uh, you know, I don't know, um, we're gonna set fire to this place. It's another thing to say we're going to set fire to this place after you've spent months pouring gasoline all over the place, and um, and I if I have to like keep hearing these people make these claims that this is a free speech argument that you're allowed you know that the president is allowed to say um, whatever he wants because he has a Fifth Amendment right. I mean, I look, I've written a lot about this. I don't want to I don't want to rant on about it again. But it's just so incandescently stupid. You know, we hold people in everyday life, we hold actors on the Mandalorian to a higher standard of conduct than we hold the president of the United States. We hold uh, every Boy Scout leader, you know, Little League coach in the country to a higher standard of behavior than we hold the president of the United States to. and. Um, and the idea that somehow the president is free to whip up a crowd that he has had intelligence, that he has been warned, will could resort to violence, that somehow he is he is protected by the Fifth Amendment, um, I mean by, by the First Amendment, to say whatever he wants to that crowd is just flatly preposterous, and deeply deeply pernicious, and it may be true that he is protected by the First Amendment in terms of a criminal case against him. Like if you want, I don't know, as Andy McCarthy likes to say, if you went to a judge and tried to try Trump for incitement, um, um, he would, the case would get thrown out of court because he said, you know, uh, behave peacefully once. He had one CYA line in, I don't know, 11,000 word you know, harangue that uh, people are now saying lets him off the hook, and it does criminally. But you don't have a right to be president, and um, and you don't have a right to run again for president. Lots of people have their right to run for president taken away from them for far less. Uh, people who've been in prison, right? People, you know, there are all sorts of things. People who've been in car accidents, you know, I don't know. They're all, you know... There are lots of people who are ineligible to run for federal office. Everybody under the age of, what, 30 can't run, or 35 can't run for president. Um, people are treating the ability to run for president um, or the ability to not be impeached as if it is on par and equatable with your rights in a criminal proceeding. And it's just not true. And it's I find it embarrassing. And I listen to... People constantly say you can't impeach a former president, a government official, including people who are trying to impeach him. They talk about how, you know, this is an impeachment right now. It's not an an impeachment of a former president. He was impeached as president. But the arguments that you hear from all over the place are just this post hoc rationalization, nonsense from both sides. and this is this is why I get depressed I, again, you can tell I'm tired of talking about the impeachment stuff. I think it is so depressing, so depressingly obvious that he should be impeached for what he did. So depressingly obvious that he should be shamed from putting his face in public ever again as clearly the biggest sore loser in American history. Um, and frankly, Even though I agree entirely with Andy McCarthy and others, that a better case would have been made, a better case to impeach him would have been to uh charge him with dereliction of duty. Because he did, he didn't, he certainly didn't do enough uh when he saw with his own eyes on TV that the Capitol was being sieged. Um, he he refused to act. And that alone is, you know, a violation of his responsibilities of his office. Um, but I've become more more persuaded than I had been that the dereliction case, which I think is open and shut, actually helps justify the the incitement case, because look, if if he didn't intend incitement, and I realize this is a little bit of a logical stretch, but I I, I find it persuasive as a matter of psychology and as a matter of the kinds of standards we should hold public officials to, if he didn't intend incitement, if he didn't intend for the crowd to intimidate the weak Republicans and the rhinos, um, if he didn't want this to happen, or if he didn't enjoy watching it happen when it happened, you would have done more, right? And it's one thing, like, if I create Frankenstein's monster and I don't know that it's got the abnormal or abnormal brain in it and uh, it rips its leather straps and runs out of the lab and starts killing villagers. Well, one way to tell whether or not I intended for that to happen is what I do after the monster leaves the lab. If I marshal every resource I have to capture the monster and keep it from killing again. That probably suggests that I didn't, didn't intend to unleash a monster on innocent people. But if I run to my office and I watch the monster pillaging and burning and killing as it runs through the village on TV, and I'm like, "Gotta see how this plays out." Um, well, then maybe I did intend it. Maybe this was what I was going for, or at the very least, it's something that I should be held accountable for given my actions in unleashing the monster in the first place. And so I don't think the dereliction of duty argument, which you can see the managers bringing up, um, necessarily uh, is in in conflict with the incitement thing. I think it actually helps the incitement claim. But, and here's where I get mad at the Democrats. The, The unseriousness of this entire thing is so depressing to me. Look, I, I think Jonathan Turley's complaints are pretextual. I think a lot of these things are, let's just find the best arguments we can make that don't put us on the wrong side of Trump or Fox viewers or Trump voters or whatever. And, um, and I look, I, I'm friends with, with Hugh Hewitt, but you know, if I have to hear him one more time, quote, Mike Ludwig, as if, um, that settles the issue for all serious minded people, I'm going to lose it. Um, but the, the, the idea, and I can't remember how I got onto this cause I'm so frigging tired. Um, but the, 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 uh, anyway, so look, I, I, that's right. Uh, Jonathan Turley, I don't, um, I don't like a lot of the way John Turley, who I've known for a long time, has been arguing about a lot of this stuff um, because I think he's one of these guys is just trying to find a safe harbor. But um, at the same time, I think he's absolutely right. And I think the the Trump legal team is right, um, uh, which might just be a matter of, you know, random circumstance given how often they're they make fools of themselves but the house should have locked in testimony if they weren't going to do what i think they should have done which is hold a hearing um write articles of impeachment that were bipartisan that were done under bipartisan consultation and then the senate should have picked up the trial and convicted and removed trump from office within i don't know 72 or 96 hours i think that is the obvious thing that would, would have happened in a healthy country. Um, but if they're not gonna do that, they should have compiled a lot of witness testimony. And they didn't. And they didn't write the best article of impeachment because they wanted it to be more of a, a wedge issue and stink bomb for, for Republicans than something that would actually lead towards conviction. Um, even though I think they sincerely think he should be convicted because I don't know how you couldn't. Um, and at the same time, the Senate, which is actually where the trial is supposed to happen. You know, the fact-finding does not have to happen in the House. You know, there are grand juries that issue uh, arrest warrants or indictments very, very, very quickly. They don't have to do, you know, a searching examination of all the facts on the evidence and the evidence. They can do it Jiminy Cricket if they think they need to. And uh, so even if the House failed in its responsibility. The Senate could call witnesses. It is ridiculous that we have to glean what was Trump's state of mind solely from his tweets. There were people in the Oval Office. There are people who are probably desperate to burnish um, or rehabilitate their reputations for being part of all of this um, who could testify. Um, I I, I see zero reason why they shouldn't call Mike Pence to testify. I see zero reason why they shouldn't send a sergeant-at-arms to go compel Donald Trump to come testify since they asked him to testify. I don't know if they formally issued a warrant or if they just invited him. But, you know, this is the problem. Nobody takes their own role in these things seriously. You know, you got Josh Hawley with his feet up on a chair reading irrelevant material because he's too cool to go along and even pay attention to this stuff. You have. Um, Marco Rubio in this bow stewing panic of having to run against Ivanka Trump in Florida, who is going around like the cool kid outside of assembly saying, Oh, you know, this pledge of allegiance stuff is stupid. Why do we even have to do any of this kind of stuff? Because he needs to signal that he's not on board. People are taking pride in the fact that they're not taking this stuff seriously. And it's part of this thing that I was trying to get at last week in that It is as if major parts of our political system no longer even understand how to deal with physical reality anymore. They think all of politics is just the moving around of images and words, um, turning phrases, uh, arousing passions through, you know, uh, the manipulation of images and you know if if a major corporation were involved in litigation you know let's put it this way dominion and smart tech have done more serious work about cleaning up the lies of the election than the united states congress has they are actually taking depositions they are you know, doing fact finding, they are dealing with the the actual factual record and compiling information, and everyone wants to skip that step at the national level and just smush around words like so much finger paint, as if that's a that's an adequate substitute for doing the work. Go, you know go full Columbo and put people under oath, get them to say, you know, under oath, what they want to say. And if it drags on, so be it. You know, I, I, look, I I, I want to deal with the pandemic as much as anybody in America. I want it behind us. Um, but, uh, this constant refrain about how this is a waste of time when there's so many more important things to be done. Um, you know, I would find that such a more compelling argument from, from Republicans uh, much like, you know, like the same thing with the, their argument that, you know, the, the, the Hugh Hewitt line that uh, since this is unconstitutional um, and uh, that therefore there's nothing more to be said about it, let's move on. That's essentially what Hughes position is. Um, That is what Holly's position is. That is what, Most of the Republicans' positions is. And um, I would take you seriously if you actually believe that. And I think some people actually do believe that. But it's really weird how that coincides with the inability of so many people to express a modicum of outrage about what Donald Trump did, a modicum of like serious condemnation of what he did. I mean, it'd be one thing if people were going around saying, damn it. It's awful that this isn't this hearing, this trial isn't constitutional because of what Trump did. He deserves to be removed from office. It is just, ah, it is just, it's awful to have our hands tied by the constitution this way because what he did was wicked and evil. They're not saying that. Instead, like Roy Blunt of all people is saying, you know, I don't know what the difference between this is and what happened last summer with the riots. This was an assault on the seat of the U.S. government, marshaled by, you know, the chief executive in order to steal an election. And if if you if you think it's like a waste of time to deal with that and put that to rest in a way that is satisfactory for the historical record and is satisfactory with with just a, a general accountability, um then I don't understand what you really think government is for. I don't want to hear how much you love the Constitution and how much you revere the Founding Fathers if at the same time you buy into all the living Constitution bulls** that Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and and 100 and whatever congressmen bought into. Um, It is just so dismaying to me. And then, you know, as I talked to, you know, Kevin Kosar on the podcast this week about the state of Congress, And, you know, cheer up for the worst is yet to come, because the actual Congress is just completely dysfunctional. It is completely incapable of doing the basic bread and butter stuff. Forget impeachment. It can't hold hearings anymore, because everybody has to bebop and scat and preen for cameras rather than actually legislate. You have, you know one office, you know, one con- congressional office after another that just isn't interested in policy anymore. Um, you know it's it, I used to buy into the demosclerosis argument of Jonathan Rauch, and I still think there's a lot of truth to it. You know, Rauch's argument was basically that, you know, the system had become so bureaucratic, there was so much sort of uh, sclerotic accretions forming on the joints and arteries of our system due to bureaucratic inertia and, and bedding and corruption and, 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 you know, regulatory capture and all these kinds of things that government couldn't be nimble anymore and all that. And I agree with that when you're talking about the problems with bureaucratic government. Um, but I really think it's starting to pale by conspari- comparison to the problem with the fact that politicians don't even know why they're elected anymore. Um, and I'll give this to Joe Biden. Uh, I think he still is, I think just by virtue of the fact that he's old enough, um, he remembers like what government is actually supposed to do, but he's too weak to actually deal with the, um, the reality of the mess that government is in. And he just recognizes that Congress doesn't work and that his own party doesn't want to make it work. So he issues all of these executive orders, which just compounds the problem of not actually doing the basic, you know, blocking and tackling of of government work, of governing. Um, And just everywhere you look, uh, with a handful of exceptions, it is either an abdication of political leadership to do the hard and heavy lifting of governing, or it is even more depressing, a complete and total ignorance about what governing is and how you're supposed to do it. Instead, it's like, let's all live in the sort of Marshall McLuhan astral plane of smushing around images and words, um, because that's the only currency that people understand anymore. It's as if, you know, this thing I was talking about a couple of times, like with Scott linscomb and others, you know, there's this McAfee argument about the dematerialization of the economy um which i think in general is a good thing right we're using we're 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 growing economically but we're using material resources less which is kind of awesome when you think about it. it leaves more room for cool animals and and more forests and um you know if if everything gets turned into um tiny 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 transistors and ones and zeros we won't have to use fossil fuels anymore i mean I, I, like that trend i think is a good one But it can't also apply to politics. It can't apply to government. Government can't simply be, um, you know, the matrix where if you have the right gift, you can will into into reality, any reality you want or behave as if you do. Governing actually involves like knowing things and doing the work and finding the facts and arguing about options and all of these things. And Our political class increasingly just doesn't want to do it, doesn't know how to do it. And the journalistic class doesn't really know how to do it. That's another point I think Kevin Kosar was, was right about. A lot of political reporters, um, the only way they know how to cover politics is in terms of how is basically sort of popularity contests, you know, it's politics as mean girls and, um, or as fanboys. And, you know, I, this is what I wanted to write about on the G-File today, is that, uh, look, I am the first one, as, as you can tell, uh, who thinks Donald Trump has an enormous amount to answer for, and his enablers have an enormous amount to answer for, but at the same time, I think it is incandescently and inarguably true that, and I guess I'm, I'm partly guilty of this too, um, that by grabbing all of the attention um and by driving his opponents crazy to a certain extent uh we took the eye we took our eyes off the ball of a lot of other problems in this country that needed to be dealt with and i think the 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 andrew cuomo stuff is a perfect example of this you know uh It was, and I don't want to make this just like a stupid media bias thing, but that's part of it. The way he was covered as sort of the anti-Trump because he gave these straight talking press conferences and whatnot, he was given a frickin' Emmy for them, um, created a climate where it became very difficult, even though some people noticed and some people pointed it out, um, that Andrew Cuomo screwed up royally. And I don't blame him for not knowing the unknown unknowns or for having to deal with a difficult situation at a difficult time and having to make a lot of snap decisions that could only be revealed as wrong in retrospect. Um, doesn't mean I necessarily agree with all of the decisions, but, you know, during a crisis, sometimes you don't have time to wait for um, the best possible Um, choice. You have to choose between, you know, option A, which involves limited knowledge, and option B, which involves limited knowledge. And that's all, you know, that, that, uh, again, I don't, I don't blame him for that stuff. But he also covered up his mistakes. He lied about his mistakes. Um, And at a time when the country was desperately in need of learning not just from successes but from failures during a pandemic that is morally unforgivable and outrageous, and the press uh, for the most part missed that entirely because in the context of Trump bad, they had to report and act as if cuomo good and um, and I think that as we look back in the last four years, we're going to discover that there was an enormous amount of that kind of stuff that uh, just didn't get the attention and the criticism it deserved because all eyes were on Trump. And um, yes, this is a criticism of people like me, and then the more extreme, you know, sort of resistance types and all that. But, you know, it's also a criticism of Trump, and it's also a criticism of his enablers. You know, people say, you know, the Democrats always wanted to impeach Trump, and so it's no big deal that he got impeached because, you um, You know, they were determined to do it no matter what. There's some truth to that. There's also a lot of truth to the fact that because Donald Trump did not care about how he would be perceived, did not care to do the due diligence of acting like he was the president for the whole country, he aroused in his opposition things that other presidents try to avoid arousing. He deserves the blame for being impeached. Twice. Because he did things that any sane person, any knowledgeable person about politics would know that would risk impeachment by Democrats looking for an excuse to impeach it. And so there's this 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 really just passive aggressive nonsense from both sides that, you know, on the one side, the Trump defenders say Trump is blameless because they're just out to get Trump. Um, without ever conceding that Trump does things to warrant that kind of vitriol and animosity. He deserves the hatred that he gets from most people, not from everybody. I mean, there are people who truly lost their mind. I wouldn't go and pose with a with his head cut off or anything like that. Um, but there's also this tendency on the left and on parts of the right to... Um, make it easier for Trump defenders to make that point because they don't keep their powder dry for the times when Trump deserves the kind of anger and animosity that he deserves. So, and then I guess I should talk about this Lincoln project thing, which I have studiously tried to avoid. I've known a couple of the guys in the Lincoln project a little bit. um, And Um, I've always said, I think the way the Lincoln project did things was bad and I didn't like it. Um, I never liked John Weaver. I have friends who knew John Weaver. I always thought that, um, John Weaver was a dishonorable guy in politics. I didn't know that he, you know, was preying on young men or anything like that. Um, but, uh, this idea that some, he, you know, he carved out this place for a long time, you know, this argument of sanctimoniousness on the right that made John Kasich seem like Kevin McCarthy. You know, he was such a finger-wagger. And uh, and so, you know, I I never thought it was a good sign that he was part of that thing. Um, Steve Schmidt, I think, is one of the most galling, intellectually vacuous posers in American life. Um, And I knew that his involvement in that, you know, and look, look, we'll be honest, He he and I got into that stupid Twitter fight a while back because he called Noah Rothman and, and, uh, was it, Mike Lewis, uh, the equivalent of Vichy collaborators with Nazism because they they did what I was talking about before. They kept their powder dry for when Trump deserved serious criticism and denunciation, but they didn't just start from the premise that whatever Trump does needs to be denounced. Um, and for this you know, popular front jackwad uh, that Steve Schmidt is, for him, that was collaboration with Nazis. And I called him out on, on Twitter, and he attacked me and I attacked him. Um, and it was a great die marker among a lot of people, not normal people out in America who like Steve Schmidt because they see him on TV, but, um, or hate Steve Schmidt because they see him on TV. I don't mean those people, but inside Washington, among the political class, the people who took his side over my side in that thing told me a lot about who they are because Steve Schmidt's a known quantity in Washington. John Weaver is a known quantity in Washington. And uh, taking his side over my side in that fight showed me what lack of character and integrity or honesty you have. And I was very interesting and I made mental notes of all of it. But this this whole thing about the Lincoln Project from the beginning was um this vanity play to appeal to um uh basically MSNBC voters. I mean it was it was it was very much like something you would expect from the writers of west wing you know i mean remember uh, for those of you who never watched west wing congratulations for dodging that bullet um but there was always this sort of aaron sorkin right aaron sorkin yeah thing about west wing where um it was actually very obama-esque where it's this approach to politics where liberals think they know the interests of conservatives better than conservatives do. And um and they just need to lecture them about how if they can shake their false consciousness and become liberals, it'll actually be good for conservatives. And there's a rich vein of this going back, you know. I mean, I in from my memory from the 80s and 90s. Um but the, you know, so there's the Allen Alda character who was um, lecturing everybody. He was running for the Republican nomination from California. Um, uh, he was from California, and he was running for the Republican now. What was it? I'm sorry, I messed it up. He was running for president and Republican nomination. He was a liberal, liberal Republican, and he was pro-choice. And he was making the case that don't you understand how many voters um, a pro-choice Republican would bring into the Republican Party and Uh, This is something that, you know, the way liberals often argue, they seem to think that it's never dawned on Republicans that, uh, you know, that their positions might not be winning them votes. I mean, Republicans know why, I'm really buttering this up because I'm so tired. Republicans tend to, Republican politicians tend to know how to get their own voters to vote better than Democratic politicians do. But there's a certain breed of liberal that really doesn't understand that. And there's a certain breed of Republican that really knows how to, um, pander to those kinds of liberals. And that's what the Lincoln project was doing. It was, um, running ads, mostly on like MSNBC that were trolling Trump. And I, you know, I understand the attraction of trolling Trump. Um, and remember for a while they were talking about how they were going to take over and recreate the Republican party from scratch, as if um, every Republican voter out there, when told that, oh my gosh, John Weaver and Steve Schmidt um, and, you know, uh, and Michael Steele are starting a new party or recreating the party, that all of a sudden millions are going to flock to them. No Republican believes that kind of thing, but lots of Democrats wanted to believe it to be true, and, and they pandered to that confirmation bias. And at the same time, they line their pockets. Um, I, I would like to believe that's not true of George Conway, because I actually think George Conway, from my experience, is a pretty honorable and decent guy. I'd like to believe it's not true of Rick Wilson, but I just don't know. Um, but I would be stunned if Steve Schmidt didn't make millions of dollars off of this. Stunned. Um, and, uh, and the fact that he is righteous and sanctimonious and, you know, quotes de Tocqueville and, you know, Lord Acton as if no one else has a copy of Roger's Thesaurus. Um, to the contrary, uh, he's, he was known for his entire political career as a smash mouth, uh, you know, sort of Trumpy counterpunching thug doofus. And um it shocks me not at all that he has grifted millions of dollars out of people out of all this. And you can see the real Steve Schmidt emerging um in his reaction to being exposed. Uh it's not pretty on Twitter. Um anyway, like I thought it was kind of sad and depressing how many people sent me email um or tweets at the time saying I really hate it when two people I admire are um fighting like this and the simple thing is is that i don't admire steve schmidt and i don't think there are a lot of people who actually know him and his grift who actually admire him except for his skill at that stuff um uh and i can understand why you might think that from a distance but uh you know it's just not the way it really is and it this sort of feels like this is just another chapter and everybody getting what they deserve um, I guess I should talk for two seconds about, um, some grifting on the right too. Cause I don't think, you know, Lincoln project by the end of that thing was on the right in any meaningful sense. I mean, they were talking about just simply being a fellow traveling pack for the democratic party. Um, but I hear all the time, people accusing me of being part of conservatism inc. And I will say up front, I did a Lexus search for this when I was thinking about writing it in the G file today. Um, I'll say up front, some people mean it in an entirely defensible way, right? If, if the point is um, to argue that people associated with things like the Heritage Foundation, or AEI, or National Review, um, or um, uh, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, or you know, or, or up until recently Claremont, um, uh, the people who have been dedicated, who have, have been professional conservatives in a sense for their entire lives, um, and as professional conservatives up until about twenty fifteen who defended a certain understanding of what conservatism is and should be and what it should fight for. um, if that's all you mean by conservatism, Inc. fine. I mean, I, I think it's a confusing term, sort of like neocons, a confusing term, but if that's what you mean by it, fine. You know, the, um, conservative representatives of the institutions of conservatism, um, uh, what was it? Uh, from, uh, not operate the flood, but, you know, from before times. Um, If that's what you mean by it, fine. But there are lots of people who use it um, to suggest, and when I say they use it, I'm complaining about people who use it against me and some of my friends and colleagues. There are people who use conservatism, Inc. as a pejorative that somehow... Um, were are the grifters and con men that were the ones who are selling out. Uh, there isn't that if I read all of my mentions, um, on Twitter and all the replies on Twitter, I probably couldn't go 20 minutes without hearing this from somebody. Um, uh, I get it every day in email, right. And that, uh, and I've heard it versions of it from sort of Sean Hannity. You know, one of the other things that they'll throw in is cruises like national review had cruises and that's a sign of corruption national review, which almost never, uh, which, you know, was never in the black for any (laughs) prolonged period of time, which has to work on, uh, which needs, you know, foundational support to stay alive, um, uh, held cruises that, Made money for National Review that kept people in the membership, you know, the subscriber base and the larger NR community going. Not a single member of National Review's staff made a dime from any of those things. Um, in fact, you know, they ended up probably costing me money in the in the aggregate. Um, but they were, you know, we were staffers who went on these things, and you know, it's like Sean Hannity used to. You know, berate me for being part of the you know going on cruises as if this was a sign of my decadence and the the insincerity insincerity and uh, unseriousness of my conservatism. When you know he's the guy who won't fly commercial, um, and uh, and and is well and is Sean Hannity. But I don't want to single out Sean. Um, uh, I hear this from all sorts of people about this conservatism inc thing, as if um, you know the the people who have been sort of dedicating their lives to this to this this cause, um uh who are writers and and intellectuals and think tank types, that somehow that's the racket. And the people who are against that racket and who are the reformers and the morally just and the Um, the incorruptible are the ones who followed under, who marched into Washington under Trump's flag or rallied around Trump's flag already within Washington to drain the swamp. And look, there are a lot of good people who go to CPAC. Um, there are, uh, a lot of good organizations that participate in CPAC. I've, I won an award from CPAC, but CPAC itself, it's actual like core leadership. Is much more corrupt than anything uh, that occurs in sort of think tank uh, conservative scribbler world by orders of magnitude. I mean, the head of CPAC is still, I believe, Matt Schlapp, and Matt Schlapp, you know, he took three quarters of a million, uh, three quarters of a million dollars for two weeks worth trying to buy a pardon from Donald Trump. Um, there's an enormous amount of pay for play in CPAC world. Um, CPAC has completely made itself subservient to, 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 to Donald Trump and Trumpism. Um, Matt Schlapp was deeply, deeply involved in the big lie about the election being stolen. Um, and it's not just him. I mean, like, that's, that's the place. And it's been like that for a very long time. And, um, you know, the old president of it, David Keene, he was, um, you know, he was the guy Running CPAC and and or running AC the ACU, which I guess ran C, owned CPAC or whatever, you know these are people who were who were determining congressional scores on the conser- on conservatism, when they were also corporate lobbyists on K Street, and you know so my point is is that I'm not saying that everybody involved in CPAC or even Match Lab isn't conservative, but the amount of of money that that crowd makes from selling influence, um, from, uh, sort of essentially direct mail marketing nonsense, um, is vast. I I don't want to say it's vastly more corrupt than going on cruises and whatnot, because I never saw an iota of corruption on any like national review cruises, except maybe when we had someone like Dick Morris as a guest speaker and Dick Morris, as you know, if you snapped him open like a pea pod, nothing but black sulfuric ooze would pour out. Um, and, you know, and he tried to, like, steal National Review donors and whatnot. But, um, but National Review, you know, and, and certainly AI, um, these places, they're not in that racket. The places that are in rackets tend to be the kind of places that depend upon hundreds of thousands or millions of small donors. And the second you get dependent upon that or dependent upon the organizations that depend upon those kinds of small donors, um, you end up doing fan service rather than um, the work that you're supposed to do. And so there's an enormous, and like in the Tea Party movement, there was an enormous amount of grift and BS going on, but it wasn't from, you know, the conservatism, Inc., that believed in the sort of fusionism project or that believed in, um, you know, limited government. Um, it was from the people who, you know, who tried to monetize all of that and, um, and turn it into sort of get out the vote operations and political consulting operations. And that's the model. I mean, the interesting thing about the Lincoln project, and I'm sure this stuff exists on the democratic side. I just, don't see it as much, and I do think there's an asymmetry given where Democratic money comes from and Republican money comes from. So I don't think there are like the exact same kinds of grifting and 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 whoring going on. Um, but I'm sure there's grifting and whoring going on. Um, I mean, all you have to, and it may be even more pernicious to public policy in some ways because all you have to do is look at the role that the teachers unions are having in getting the schools back open. Um, you know, in some ways the teachers unions are far more influential in the democratic party than, you know, there's sort of like what, um, the sort of West wing Aaron Sorkin crowd thinks the, the, the NRA crowd is to the Republicans, the teachers unions actually are to the Democrats. Um, you know, they actually can get politicians on the phone and tell them not to do stuff, um, in ways, I'm not saying that, the NRA can't ever do that, but, uh, the teachers unions can do that with more politicians at a higher level than the NRA can. Um, and of course the NRA talk about another outfit that has much more to do with the pernicious version of conservatism Inc than anything that I've been involved with, um, is in, you know, kind of freefall right now. So anyway, I, I guess where I'm coming down on is I don't want to go home. I want to stay with my daughter. I'm going to go play video games in a little bit. Um, and because uh, I am just incredibly down on the, the, the direction of, of our politics, of government and, and of conservatism these days, because um, the number of either corrupt, incompetent or deranged people who have somehow in the media dialogue right now claimed the upper hand and the high ground. Um, and have the bigger soap boxes is really depressing to me. And, um, I'm delighted and so, you know, you know, enthusiastic about the success of the dispatch and we've probably outgrown the pirate skiff metaphor at this point and probably need, you know, um, you know, uh, maybe not a galleon, but I got to go look up, you know, it's been a long time since I played pirates what the next thing above pirate skiff is um, but when you compare it to the people who are, um, purely out in this to make money out of misinforming people and making people angry or, and compare it to the people who are running for, who are in government solely to misinform people and make people angry, it's, it's a little depressing and I'm sure, you know, I'll be in a better mood and I'll do my Henry v thing another day about how we happy few and this is the good fight to be in. And it's always better to be outnumbered because being outnumbered on the right side of an argument is um one of the most glorious thing places to be, which is something I actually believe and have been saying for years. Um, But when you you know, look, even Hercules, and I am no Hercules, um could be forgiven for sighing and saying, ah crap, this is going to take a lot of work. When he was looking at those stables um and the stables of washington right now are so full and these are not horse stables there are another kind uh, of there's another ungulate in there um and uh it's depressing so with that cheer up for the worst is yet to come and i'll see you next time